Welcome to All Things Terror. Welcome. I'm Jennifer. I'm Emily, and this is the podcast where we research stories from true crime, science, and history that will keep you up at night. So, in our last episode, we were talking about Dyatlov Pass, and uh, we went through pretty long history of everything that went that went down, um, who these people were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm just gonna do a super brief recap because we're getting ready to jump in through, jump in through, huh, jump into some of the theories and keeping kind of the general sequence of events is important. So, our group of nine skiers slash hikers set up a camp on the slopes of Kolat Sayakal. Yep. Sometime at night, something, some unknown cause. A compelling unknown force, uh, as the official record investigation. So, sometime at night, a compelling unknown force caused the group to tear out of the tents and flee their site. They were inadequately dressed for the sub-zero temperatures and the heavy snowfall. Six died from hypothermia, one died from a fractured skull, two died from chest fractures. Uh, fractures. One team member was missing their tongue and eyes, the, another team member was missing just their eyes. There were no external wounds to match the physical injuries. Yeah, uh, they left their tent, they cut their way out of the tent and left without their shoes, which blows my mind over and over again. Well... I told you how many theories I read into. Do you remember that number? It was like 10 or 20. <laughs> it was a lot. I read into, or I read about 20 of the theories. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think I said in the last episode that a podcast I'd listened to, and all of our sources will be in the Facebook page um, if you are interested in this and want to kind of go down the rabbit hole. It's It's definitely an enjoyable rabbit hole, but... This other podcast that I listened to described it as as Russia's uh, JFK assassination. Like, there are so many theories and explanations, um, and it's really easy to kind of spin new ones. Okay. So, I'm just gonna... I I was having a hard time how I wanted to uh, approach this, because I'm gonna talk about some of these in details, and some of them I'm not going to. So, I think I'm just gonna give you the list of 20 theories that I looked into. There's an avalanche theory, a shroom theory, an altercation theory, a catabatic wind theory, the Mansi natives theory, infrasound theory, KGB theory, (laughs) military test theory, arctic hysteria theory, the methanol poisoning theory, Mm. paradoxical undressing theory, UFO theory, The Yeti theory. (laughs) The mistaken gulag prisoners theory. Teleportation theory. Whoa. Wildlife theory. Gravity theory. The lightning strike slash ball lightning theory. The stove theory. And just straight up Wolverine theory. (laughs) The Hugh Jackman character. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Hugh Jackman came out and just fucked up everyone at the camp. I'm excited because I've heard of some of these and I definitely have feels about some of them, but others I haven't heard of at all. So I 
I think you should go from least likely to most likely, in your humble opinion. Actually, I kind of had a different approach altogether because I just stuck with the ones that were interesting to me. Yeah. Um, because some of these were just like, whatever. So, for example, I'm not even going to entertain the UFO conversation. <laughs> You're not? No. Here is the rundown of the UFO conversation. People reported seeing weird lights in that general area, including the Mansi natives, and somehow that means that there were UFOs and the UFO UFOs were involved in their ultimate demise. Yeah, I've I've seen that quite a few people in different areas saw like yeah, glowing orange orbs in the sky, which whether they're UFOs or military tests or whatever, um that is sort of brought up as an explanation of what might have terrified these people into panicking and leaving the tent. But that only explains why they may have left. And it's not an interesting theory. Like, that is that is so boring. <laughs> I mean, that is taking a page straight from, like, the weird unsolved mystery stories where they run out of, like, true crime stories to tell. Yeah. I will say, though, one thing, because um, I've been researching this for a couple of weeks, and I'd heard about it a couple of years ago, and um, last night, we recorded the first part yesterday, and last night as I was going to bed, I was like, oh yeah, they left the tent in a panic, cut their way out of the tent, but then somebody put a flashlight with a flashlight that's on on top of the tent, like, hey, here's the tent, find your way back, and I'm like, that's not a move that you make in panic, like, what is going on with that? And there are some details I have uh, to go in to about the manner in which they were evacuating the campsite. Yeah, so. and and a lot of their bodies were found facing towards the tent. So, like, they ran in a panic and then they're heading back or something, possibly. I don't know. Y yeah. You know, you take it away. So, UFO theory, just, it's boring. The shroom theory is interesting because there's a type of mushroom out there that is extremely poisonous so the theory was is like they eat the poisonous mushrooms or they got really fucked up on mushrooms like again it's not compelling doesn't explain the whole situation it can't explain why people might leave because they're freaked out about something but doesn't necessarily explain the manner in which they all died i mean that is i haven't heard of that one but it is kind of interesting if they ate something and then accidentally like weren't planning on it and then all of a sudden they're all tripping and they panic and it would explain why they act irrationally but it was winter like mushrooms would be under snow and they'd been hiking all day their stove wasn't set up so like it's not like they were eating mushrooms at lunch or something right it's so it's an interesting idea but yeah it's winter it's snow there aren't mushrooms mushrooms don't grow on snow also on the list of boring theories, an altercation. So the general conversation around this is like, somebody got some jealousy feels about somebody sleeping with somebody else, and then like a fight ensued and caused what we see at the campsite, which is like people, you know, like tearing through the tent. Maybe they're chasing after somebody. Um, a more thoughtful person remembered to put a flashlight down, something. But basically, there was an altercation between members of the group. 
and they end, ultimately ended up freezing to death, and then maybe somebody fell, or a couple of them fell. But again, it's not a compelling theory. It doesn't account for um, the injuries that three of the other members received. It doesn't explain why there are no you know, external injuries. And on top of that, um, from all the documentation and from everyone who knew these people, this was a pretty close-knit group. There wasn't a weird love triangle going on, so it's really not, it's really not probable. Yeah, there's, like, no evidence that that would be reasonable behavior from any of these people. And also, like, if you, like, the scenario you outlined, oh, they fought, someone ran through the, like, clawed through the tent, took off running, someone took off running after them, like, if you were fighting and going to run away from someone, you would put your shoes on. And also, if people were fighting in the tent, the tent would be all fucked up. Like, it'd be all, things would be knocked over and stuff, and it wasn't. No, it was set up for a meal. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I, it's, that's just, like, a super boring one, and I think that's a theory that would make sense if you didn't know anything about these people, so, um... Yeah, I agree. Not not really compelling at all. Another one is just the, I'm going to call it the wildlife slash wolverine theory. Basically, they encountered some sort of wildlife, attacked by the wildlife, caused everyone to flee, and then some of the injuries could be accounted for, maybe by wildlife, but there would probably actually be more physical external injuries if like they were battling something like a bear with claws. But also remember, we have some very hardy Soviet men who have like scared away bears and stuff. And these are also expert truckers. Like they aren't unaccustomed to the wildlife in the area and how to deal with it. So yeah, I mean, I guess if like a moose kicked you in the chest, that could break your ribs, but maybe not leave a mark right away. But yeah, it doesn't really account for, again, if, if a moose or a bear suddenly appeared in their tent or at the entrance of the tent, the inside is going to be all chaotic or whatever. They're not going to be doing that. And and I think they've proven that they know how to keep their head in a situation with animals. Yeah, definitely. So the Mansi natives one, the whole theory there is like, they were camped out in Mansi territory because this is where the Mansi hunt. And therefore they took them and, you know, sacrificed them or killed them but there's just really no evidence and a lot of that is just rooted in general racism (laughs) in yeah in racism and added towards to the native people that live out there um so not really gonna give that any time or attention and then well uh, the the mansi yeah the mansi also helped with the search so they're not gonna be like oh yeah we killed them and sacrificed them let us help you and pretend that we didn't do that like no it's it's fucking bullshit yeah it's totally um ridiculous so then i will say one other thing about the mansi and this is again one of those cases where every little detail just is interesting but doesn't help you think of an answer um the mountain is in mansi the word for it it means dead mountain which is very ominous and creepy. But one thing I read or listened to said that it's called Dead Mountain because nothing grew up there. Like they were above the tree line. So there weren't animals, there weren't things to hunt up there, Um, which one does also dispel the animal theory. And two is like, yeah, the Mansi are like, there's no reason to go up there. Like, 
so yeah it's just mountain yeah <laughs> and snow um so a couple that i just read about but didn't like get in a whole lot of detail because again it's interesting but not really the stuff that was most interesting to me um the mistaken gulag prisoners theory is that because they were in that general outskirt area of siberia um they came across maybe some military people or some other sort of law enforcement that thought that they were prisoners that escaped from the gulag and shot them on site really not any evidence that those people were shot yeah so um gulag prisoners not very likely no um one that was interesting but just doesn't it doesn't pass muster is the military test one. So this is the idea that they were camping in an area where missiles were being tested or missiles accidentally ended up getting launched to. And of course, like the contact of a missile terrified people out of the tent. Um, some of they would, they would also argue that some of the impact injuries that they saw and the three um, campers would be explained by missiles or missile impact or debris impact, that kind of thing. Hmm. So, and uh, there's a lot of ways it's talked about, and it's not out of the realm of potentiality. Like, it is something that could have hap- could have happened in that area, except they weren't testing over there. You know, missile impact, would probably create a lot more visible damage in the area, including there being, like, shards of missile everywhere, um, which there was no evidence that there were missiles. But there was a a blog that I will um, leave a link for that talked about probably the most plausible missile, uh, missile situation, which was the person argued that the granted and granite in the side of the mountain was melted to glass, which would uh, be evidence of, you know, a hot missile right up against a mountainside. So it didn't hit their campsite; it hit the mountain. Mm. And and he says there's evidence of this in satellite images. Um, but the campers would have been woken up by the shock wave, so not by the missile itself, but the uh, shockwave, they would have been blinded by the light of the missile, um, especially since it the impact clearly shows it was at such a high temperature, um, and that they would have suffered like some sort of temporary blindness, whether it be just like they couldn't see because of the light or the light was so bright. You know, if you stare at a light long enough, you can't see anything kind of situation. Yeah, that's interesting. So, but again, it would explain, if it was a shockwave, wouldn't it knock over other things in the tent? Maybe. Like, a shockwave doesn't necessarily mean it, like, jostles a bunch of things loose. It would be something you could feel. Yeah. But, you know, maybe it's like a, a low-level earthquake. Like, it shakes stuff, but doesn't really break or move anything too dramatically. Yeah, but, but the it, temporary well, blindness would explain, like, a panicked reaction. Yep, so they would have cut their way out of the tent, escape tried to descend into the woods. Um, and the theory is, is that um, the group that was found in the wood woods area, they think that they probably just slip and fell 
into the ravine. Yeah. Because they couldn't see. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. So, um, and something else that the guy mentioned is, like, if there wasn't radiation on the clothes, which that is something, there are three separate articles of clothing that were found on two of the bodies that were radioactive. Oh, yeah, I um, forgot this, about that. This blogger says that if they weren't radioactive, his theory would have been it would have been a meteor strike that caused this situation with the same pieces of evidence that he sees in his opinion. Oh, that's interesting. Like a meteor. I hadn't heard that one. Probably the most, I think, credible of the 850 different variations of missile strike. Like it, they weren't hit directly or too close, but it was close enough for the impact to be seen and felt causing a panic. Yeah. And in the panic, all these, you know, basically a, a series of unfortunate events occurred. Well, and I'm thinking too, like, if I felt like a sonic boom or if I saw a missile hit, well, I've seen, you know, enough movies that it would frighten me, but I would know what it was, I guess. But I could also see in 1959, you know, especially in the USSR, maybe you're not seeing, you know, they're young enough, they don't know about V2 rockets, they didn't necessarily have that there you know it, it might be more panic inducing in 1959 than it would be in 2019 where they haven't seen a thousand movies with rockets exploding maybe i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean it, it would be it would be an upsetting situation if you're out there and all of a sudden there's a bright light there's sound yeah there's this you know, disturbance in the general atmosphere. But well, um, you know, I wonder I put it in there. If a, I wonder if a meteor or uh, like an errant missile would also explain those orange orbs that people saw in the sky. Yes, and that that was something else that a lot of the people who argue meteor or missile testing point to is that a lot of people do do claim to have seen orange orbs. Yeah, and and people unaffiliated with this expedition too. Yeah, hmm. that's so interesting. It's something to think about. Um, on on the list, uh, just uh, I I kind of want to get this one out of the way because I said it, and I know people are gonna have their eyebrows up. But the teleportation theory is basically, if you haven't seen the movie. Go see the movie, because I'm not going to explain this theory any further, but it's basically a Devil's Pass situation. I haven't seen that movie. <laughs> so Devil's Pass is about um, Dyatlov's Pass. Yeah. But it deals a lot with teleportation and teleportation experiments. So, like, the people, like Dyatlov and uh, Yuri, those guys are being teleported other places? I'm going to tell you nothing because the movie is really worth watching. Oh, man, Jennifer. You you need to watch it. In fact, we can watch it together if you want, but you need to watch it. All right, I'll watch it together. Maybe, we'll, listeners, do you want to be invited to our Devil's Pass watch party? We should have a Devil's Watch, or Devil's Pass watch party. Yeah, we'll get like a, um, what is, is it fucking Discord or whatever, and you can all chime in. Yeah, that'd be fun. So you're just going to tease us with that one, bitch. 
I am. It's really just to get people to watch the movies that they watch. <laughs> Did you write that movie? Is this how we find out that you are the creator of that movie? In fact, it is how you found find that out. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to talk about my favorite theories now. Yay. I, I kind of run through some of those other ones and didn't mention any of the other ones, but these are the ones I want to talk about. So, first off, I want to talk about the avalanche theory. Mm-hmm. So, um, the avalanche theory is hotly contested. You would think this would be like, oh, this is the most reasonable, possible, real thing. Um, but I'm going to explain mostly why it's controversial. So, the area that they are camped at, um... If you remember my very terrible, terrible pronunciation, is Kalut Sayakal. Mm -hmm. And it's just not an avalanche prone area. And the avalanche theory, like I said, seems plausible until you consider that it isn't avalanche prone and you're dealing again with extremely experienced hikers who would be trained to deal with avalanches yeah and also like avalanches are not things that like happen and don't leave evidence yes it and that's something that gets brought up here so um there are no signs of the avalanche pretty much anywhere and there's no patterns that you would associate with avalanche and there's also no debris because you would get a lot of debris with an avalanche the bodies were covered with a shallow layer of snow. So you wouldn't get that if we're talking about an avalanche. No. That, I mean, um, yeah, if they were in an avalanche, I mean, it would be way more and they would be way deeper down and it would be not snow. It would be like snow and rocks and trees. And, um, yeah. I, I'm a skier. Um, and, you know, in, in mountains where they have, ski lifts like i don't know why i'm struggling so much to say this um like ski resorts are on mountains where you know the snowpack before you even ski on it is like 12 feet you get so much snow up there and they are never going to have avalanches on those mountains so i just want you to think about all of the machinery and hundreds or thousands of people tramping around and sometimes they have artificial snow machines up there and the lifts are these huge things and it's 12 feet of snow that never moves. Um, so avalanches are not very common and they're very specific like geography and they're crazy violent events. I mean, it's like a tsunami wave on land. So yeah, like the tent would not be there. The trees would be all fucked up. Like people far away would know that the avalanche had occurred. Uh, just yeah and it so there's other things too like um you mentioned that all the bodies were facing the campsite the bodies hadn't been swept away yeah right and they would be and like they are described as being like yeah facing the campsite and like laying in certain ways where their limbs are twisted around them a little bit but like if you had been tumbled in snow, you would be all fucked up and splayed out and everything going different ways. Like, yeah. There was also no damage to the tree line. So 
not really any signs that there was an avalanche. Yeah. Plus, um, they did an analysis, and it shows that even if an avalanche did occur in that area, which is still highly unlikely, it would have bypassed the camp. Interesting. Um, yep. And, and I mentioned, I alluded to this early, earlier, the, foot, the footprints that they were able to find don't indicate, like, panic or running. These people were walking calmly interesting that's crazy i haven't heard that so that is the avalanche theory and why it isn't 100 percent the answer as to what happened so um the ones that i'm getting ready to talk about next are probably my two favorite ones yay so, the infrasound theory. Um, what infrasound is, it's a low-frequency sound uh, sound wave that humans can't hear, but um, they, they, being the scientific community, have shown that can cause panic attacks and physical discomfort when we, quote-unquote, experience them. Yeah. Because right? we can't hear them cognitively hear them so and this uh is talked about a little bit in the dead mountain book but what happens is they believe is that um a carmen vortex street which is a repeating pattern of swirling uh, vortices um they form Anywhere that a fluid form is disturbed by an object, so for example, a mountain peak, mm-hmm. or you know, an island chain, and um, basically it develops behind a cylinder, and uh, it causes vibrations that could actually be infrasound. So the theory is is that the wind would pass over the mountain and that would create the vortex which would create the infrasound which would have caused pain and panic in the campers so they fled down the slope to escape as they're escaping they regain uh, their mental and physical comfort at the bottom of the slope and was like ah shit why did what was going on why did we do this okay we're whole people now but it was too dark to find the camp yeah so um the theory is three and you'll hear this in almost all of these uh, theories besides the really crazy ones like yeti where the injuries of the three victims came from tripping over the ravine and ravine and landing on the rocks yeah well i've heard that one too and i find it really interesting but i think that infrasound is like not everybody can hear it is that right it's not that i mean people can't hear it so a carmen vortex um can a carmen vortex street can create a scary loud sound and that would have been initially startling but regardless if you can hear it it can cause feelings of pain, discomfort, and panic internally just through the vibrations. Interesting. So I... So that... Go ahead. I was going to say, I've seen things um, 
where I almost want to say Mythbusters did this, but I could totally be making this up. But the idea is that it is like a subsonic sound. So we're not consciously hearing it, but our body reacts to it. And that's like one of the explanations for ghosts is that pipes can make this frequency um, that can make us feel uneasy or uncomfortable. But um only like 20% of the population actually has that reaction. So that's why some people who are quote unquote sensitive to spirits are actually that 20% of the population that reacts to subsonic sound and the rest of them don't. So like, I don't know if it fits into this theory is the idea of like, yeah, but the likelihood of nine people all reacting and reacting this strongly to the subsonic sound would be astronomical. Well, and I don't know. I know, might be. It would only it would only take a couple of people to start panicking before everybody else would maybe start panicking because other people are panicking. But that's a good point, it, point, right? Like if you're with someone and they are starting to like scream and be like, "What's happening in my head?" You're gonna be like, "Whoa, what the fuck?" So it's not. It gets a little more complicated. So the infrasound theory has a lot of possibilities. So you have just straight infrasound caused by um, the Carmen Vortex Street, but also uh, Carmen Vortex Street, like I said, can produce a, a loud, scary sound on its own. Yeah. So we could have infrasound affecting people plus a really loud sound that's inexplainable. Um, if you guys get curious on your own, I really encourage you to go read more about um, Carmen Vortex Street because one, it's really fascinating and beautiful, like what they look like, but two, um, they're terrifying. <laughs> the reality of them is terrifying because they can just destroy cities without any, uh, without a moment's notice. Hmm. Um, but, and just take down buildings, like easier than anything else can but also what sometimes happens with the carmen Vort uh, vortex street so remember you have infrasound affecting some all of the campers maybe um there may have been a loud scary sound outside of that but um sometimes and especially if the mountain is like a, a dome shape which this mountain is mm -hmm. it's a blunt service a blunt service so when the wind hits the <laughs> it dome, sounded like you said blood service <laughs> it's a blood service mm. a blunt service so when the wind hits the dome so this is air being interrupted a fluid structure being interrupted by a cylinder blah 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 yeah. um and it's blowing in a straight line which it was um at this time the wind can become warped and break into small but mighty tornadoes, and those tornadoes would have gone down either side of the path. So they also, hmm. on top of the infrasound and maybe the loud, scary sound, there could have also been tornadoes around them. So Well, and that would have <laughs> been, I mean, that would have, I... I had seen tornado theory and I was just like, fuck that. But the way that you're describing it is convincing me a little bit more. But also, like, if you saw a tornado, uh, that would explain panic. Like, if I was camping and saw a tornado, like, within closeness to me, I would totally be like, oh, fuck, I'm getting out of here. 
Or heard a tornado, because tornado sounds are scary. Oh, they're so loud, yeah. So, and this would have been lots of little tornadoes. Oh, yeah, which, I mean, uh, fucking, I would run away from that. (laughs) So, um, something to know about infrasound and about the Carmen Vortex Street is that this, the Carmen Vortex Street is a weather phenomenon and it hasn't been observed in this area specifically, but it has been observed in areas similar to this area. So it's not impossible for that to happen where they were staying. Yeah. So that is the infrasound theory. Um, I I found this one really interesting. I learned a lot about Carmen Vortex Street, which I knew nothing about previously. And it's also something that like bothered me and kept me up at night a little bit the more and more I read about it you can really go down a rabbit hole on this one yeah I didn't know I knew like borderline nothing about this so I'm very very intrigued so um another one another theory that is related to wind and weather phenomenon is the catabatic wind theory yeah this one i heard a little bit about and i got really excited and then i was like no i'm not doing the theories (laughs) (laughs) so um i just the first thing i want to point out is like carmen vortex street really cool name Uh uh-huh even though i'm not saying it with the proper accent but cool name yeah uh catabatic wind literally is derived from greek and it's meaning Descending or going down, which is like the laziest naming system I have experienced thus far in our scientific journeys on this show. Yeah, but it's still, it's a cool sounding word. A lazy naming system, (laughs) but cool sounding word. So, do better science. I have high expectations. Um, So, basically, this happens when cold air um, over a glacier or a mountain flows down a gradient and the english statement of this or the uh i had to understand what we're talking about why cold air going down a gradient is important so these downslope winds carry this um uh cold air has a high density so this high density air from a high elevation via gravity down a slope and when it's doing that because cold air has a higher density um it can be really intense and it accelerates it can accelerate to a force of a hurricane so this wind just suddenly goes bananas as it's going down a slope because it's collected all this really cold air this high density air and is bringing it into this warmer air progressively as it goes down the slope Hmm. and it's just dominating in acceleration interesting so basically it is here i am blowing like a hurricane (laughs) so Uh, it would be again like very loud yes it would you would have like the wind sounds um but it's it's actually kind of interesting and and this is the reason why it's interesting is I'll, I'll get down to it in just a minute. Um, in the group's diary, and this is important, they did note that there was a warm wind in the valleys. Mm. So the cold air in a catabatic wind can displace the warmer air below, so in the valleys. Yeah. Um, and if the lower elevations are warmer, then... So the 
so basically the warmer the lower elevations are, the stronger the catabatic wind. Huh. So that note in the group diary, that detail, as we have been mentioning, is significant because it would ex- it would account for potentially a strong hurricane-like wind if the catabatic wind happened. So the thing about a catabatic wind to know as well is that it it happens quickly. It's not like a storm. So like if there is a hurricane, like you know, the hurricane is like warming up for a long time yeah. before you start getting the intensity of the winds. It's like, okay, can we just it's like waiting for someone to get dressed and get ready to go. They're just taking for fucking ever. Yeah, right? it's it builds up strength over a long time of the storm not petering out. Yep. So Catabatic winds are the opposite. They're just like, boom, we're here, and fuck you. Yeah, So interesting. Um, the tents would have been completely fucked if they got caught in the wind. So this is why it's significant. Um, because they are trained, experienced hikers, skiers, trekkers in these areas... It would be common practice if you're getting pelted by a catabatic wind to dump snow on top of the tent. Oh, to keep it from blowing away. Right. And and you would want to leave immediately. So it would explain them running out of the tent. It would explain the snow on top of the tent. And the flashlight it's, on top. And the flashlight. So this is why I've, I was really compelled to mention it the last time is that um, this is a strategy for people who... Uh, hike and ski in these kinds of areas is if you are leaving your campsite suddenly for any reason you would mark it in the dark with a flashlight as a beam so you can get back to your campsite yeah that makes sense so the theory is is they they got hit by catabatic wind it was really sudden so of course like they need to leave immediately there's not a whole lot of time to get dressed um they dump snow on top of the tent they mark it with a flashlight, and then they go. They descend the slope to wait out in the wind. Uh, to wait out the wind in the wooded area. Well, and then that would also explain, like, uh, if the flashlight died, or even if it didn't, and they start making their way back. Well, they've been sitting there waiting. They're cold. Like, if they're starting to freeze to death, this might explain, like paradoxical undressing which we talked about in um the episode about kids that disappear or um yeah if they the guys that were under the trees were like oh we're gonna like build a shelter build a fire and then they fall out of the tree or something like it it's interesting i find this very compelling so it gets a little more interesting oh dear so there is evidence of snow being affected by heavy winds on the pass and if there if the evidence that they discovered is true the high winds would have actually made it hard to stand upright oh um objects in the wind like ice sheets could have caused body trauma so if they got pelted by an ice sheet oh yeah i can see that it would explain why there are internal injuries but not external injuries um, I mean, so think about it this way. Catabatic winds are so strong that they have caused plane crashes in that area. 
So catabatic winds are not unfamiliar to that specific area. Yeah. And the the thought is is that um, the four hikers uh, could have got so the groups of two hikers um, they actually could have gotten trapped under a collapsed snow shelter, which also would have been something that they were trained to do to protect themselves against strong winds, which would be to build temporary snow shelters. Oh shit, girl, that makes so much yeah. sense. One of the things that I really like about this theory is that a lot of the things that I've seen are like, what would cause these nine very rational, well-trained people to lose their minds and act irrationally ah, and panic? But like this theory is, it makes sense for these people. Like they aren't panicking. They aren't losing their shit. Like they're making the right choice and what they're trained to do. And it just goes awry in lots of little different ways. Like, I feel like yeah, I, this is the opposite of that fight theory where the fight theory is like, well, that doesn't make sense for who these people were. But this theory does make sense for who those people were. No, and it, it does, like, if all these things are true, then everything that, all these details that are confusing or don't make a lot of sense or have question marks around them actually fit in to this theory. Like, because all of it is actually very rational behavior. Yeah. Um, this is my favorite theory in terms of plausibility. I think that there is a much higher chance of it being a catabetic wind than something like a Yeti or mysterious murder on a pass. But uh, we also all know how I feel about things like Yetis and UFOs. So, <laughs> well, um, I think a Yeti is a really lazy explanation, but, uh, I have always hated the Yeti whatever. Uh, I'm coming around to it more and more as, like, an interesting tale. But the problem I always have with the Yeti myth is, like, what happens when they die? Wouldn't we see their skeletons? And we've never seen anything that's, like, oh, a Yeti skeleton. Yeah, I don't know. The Yeti theory for this is just so frustrating because all of it's based off of this one picture, but if you look at the full series of pictures, it's obviously like there's this one guy. He's getting his picture taken. Uh, uh, getting his picture taken, and it's three sets of him like close up in this one area, and then the set after that is him just a little bit further away, but you can still see his face and everything. And then the last picture is the one that's quote unquote of the Yeti, and it's just him a little further away, obscured by the snow in his hat. Like yeah, it's. it's well, and there's... It's entirely irrational. There's an entry in their diary that's like, now we know that snowmen are real. But it's obviously pointing to this picture, which, like you said, if you don't isolate it... Yeah, they're they're clearly clowning around and being silly. Like, so, yeah, I'm with you on that. But... Well, anyways. Um, so now I want to talk about two at the same time because they're pretty related, and that's paradoxical undressing in Arctic hysteria. Mm-hmm. I would say these could explain at least um, why people died from hypothermia in the manner that they did, but it still doesn't explain like why they left their tent in the first place and that kind of stuff. So hyperthermia can cause someone to remove their clothing because they feel like they're incredibly warm. Mm-hmm. And six out of the nine died from hypothermia, right? But some of the members put on more clothes 
from the other members who already died. Yeah. So it could be paradoxical undressing. It could not be paradoxical undressing. It's really hard to make that call. My opinion is is not. I still feel like they were behaving in a very rational manner. Um, Arctic hysteria is very similar. Um, the idea is, is that you're in the Arctic. You're in these cold temperatures. It makes you do irrational things and behave dangerously. So a dangerous behavior would be suddenly cutting open your tent and running outside because you're freaking out. And maybe you participate in paradoxical undressing at the same time. Hmm. So um, Arctic hysteria is kind of like bunk science. Uh, in a lot of people's opinion, it only actually happens in a very small portion of the world, and this is not the portion of the world that it typically occurs in. So maybe, maybe not. Could be paradoxical undressing. It really just depends on um, your interpretation of of the situation. So, like, are some of the people less dressed because they remove their clothes and then some of the more rational members put on those clothes as those people were removing them that doesn't really seem to make sense because i would like to think that given the details of this group if they saw their friends undressing they would desperately be trying to put clothes back on them so yeah it i could see it making a little bit of sense in conjunction with, like, the catabatic wind or whatever, and this explains maybe, like, why some people don't have clothes on, or... Yeah, it's just, it's something to mention because, um, and people are always going to mention it when you talk about Dyatlov's past, is, like, paradoxical undressing might have been a behavior they demonstrated because they had hyperthermia. Yeah. Maybe. Well, and also, like, it kind of makes sense if you start to freeze to death, you get disoriented, you get sleepy, you get, um, yeah, you might start to do some paradoxical undressing, but it might have hit different people at different waves, so someone might have taken their jacket off and you might have been like, don't do that or whatever. Um, But yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. So, um, this next theory is my favorite in terms of, like, weird science. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the gravity theory. Oh, gravity. And this is, um, proposed by a German physicist, um, I literally have no idea how to say his name. It's E-R-C-H-E-N-K-O. Wait, say this again? I want to type it out as you're saying it, because, uh, it's... E R C H C H E E N K O E N K O Erchenko? Maybe. Maybe. Okay, go on. That could also be an R and an I and not an N, but my handwriting is what it is. <laughs> so basically, this German physicist says that the, cr- the group could have ended up in an area where the force of gravity was significantly decreased and what would happen is that they would have been lifted off the ground stop for real this is a real thing so your their bodies would have been lifted off the ground which probably would have been a cost for concern for a lot of the people inside of the tent like what the fuck am i floating for 
And then, so they would, you know, slit the tent open, right? This would explain why not the front entrance, but they cut the back entrance because maybe that's where they all were. And the bodies outside of the tent would have hovered in the air in like a horizontal position. Oh my god, and that's why there weren't footprints. Yep. So then, of course, like, when gravity restabilizes, right, they could have been mashed to the ground, ended up, you know, falling into a ravine, why they would have, there are seemingly missing footprints, but also, um, would also explain why they didn't have a whole lot of clothing on. Oh my gosh, this is bananas. But it is a phenomenon that can happen on this beautiful planet that we live on. Mm. And like I said, my favorite by far in terms of like weird science. That's just fascinating. (sighs) And uh, it also just brings me back to that conversation about how envious I was of people who had the moon shoes and I didn't have moon shoes. Yeah, moon shoes. Wow, we're really bringing it back. Also, I've got to (laughs) say like... I'm very skeptical of this. (laughs) Well, that's fair. I still favor the catabatic winds. I do too. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say that we've solved it. It was catabatic winds. (laughs) But the gravity one is interesting, you know. Um, It definitely caught my attention when I was reading about it, and unfortunately, there's like maybe two. Or three like sites online that really talk about this theory. Obviously, people didn't take it very seriously, but it's interesting, you know. First off, to know that that's something that like could happen in our world, but secondly, it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, here's the thing: if you have all these details, and it it just gives you perspective on like how hard like any investigator's job must be, and like getting to the truth is like all kinds of things fit the bill, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I think, one of the things that is both exciting and fun about this and also kind of awful is that many theories are, you can dismiss all the theories, but all the theories also fit. Right. Am I? But only one or maybe a... A buffet of them are true. Maybe there was a Yeti, <laughs> and maybe there was also a missile, but on top of that, there are catabatic winds, and just like in a terrible twist of fate, they also lost some gravity as well. It all happened, all the theories happened at once. Yep, all the theories happened at once, and that would have been like everyone's worst nightmare. Yeah. Also, I just want you to know that my neighbor's dog started barking, which I think is their way of saying that. They don't like the gravity theory either. Well, that's that is their opinion, and that is totally fine. <laughs> um, this last theory I'm going to talk about is my favorite in terms of like just scandalous, salacious details. Ooh, um, and a who a true whodunit kind of situation for me, uh, and that's the KGB theory. Aha! Uh-huh. I so, uh, you mentioned earlier although Clint might have cut it out that spies were going to come up and that makes me very happy because I love to talk about spies. So, Simon, Alexander, and Yuri were KGB agents. Ah, all of them. And that this is the theory. They They were on a mission to deliver radioactive samples 
in the form of clothing and uh, get some photographs of CIA agents. So they're taking these radioactive items to CIA agents and they're supposed to like take pictures of them. Oh, I see. And then something went wrong during the exchange and the CIA agents killed the group. Hmm. Now, delivering fake proof of radioactive clothes sounds crazy. It is actually not that far-fetched in, you know, the times because this was really the only way to spy on the Soviet Union. Was like making these weird oh, secret yeah, exchanges. Yeah. yeah. So at least that is what I've read. So not entirely crazy, though it sounds weird to us today. Mm-hmm. Um this this was actually totally plausible in the minds of people during the time. So um why do people think that Simon, Alexander, and Yuri were KGB agents? I'm so glad you asked. I, I was really wanted you to tell me this is really um formed from one how the soviet union was spied on typically and it would be through these weird covert um operations would say cia agents but also the details from simon alexander and yuri's life Mm. so simon if you guys remember is the only one that's in his 30s he's 37 years old He's also single. He's he's coming is... in late. He was the one who joined the group later. He was one that didn't go to school with the rest of them. So he's kind of an outlier already. Yep. But he's he's a single man at his age. So, like, if you're a spy, probably wouldn't be married, right? He was a veteran. He fought for um, the NKVD. And he had this weird tattoo that's not translatable in any known language, and it it is, and this is long. You probably shouldn't try to write it down. D A E R M M U A Z U A Y A. What? Just, just that tattoo on him. That's it. Wait, 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 wait. Say this again, because I totally am going to write it down. I have got to visualize this. B. No, D is in Delta. A is in Alpha. E is in Echo. R is in Romeo. M as in Mike. M as in Mike. U as in uniform, A as in alpha, Z, Z, U as in uniform, A as in alpha, Y as in Yankee, A as in alpha. What? And that's not anything in any language. Apparently, it is not translatable. What the fuck? That is the weirdest thing on earth. I mean, it kind of just makes me want to get, like, a tattoo of a bunch of random random letters and numbers and maybe, like, a symbol in there so that if there are ever any mysterious circumstances around my death, everyone thinks it's, like, tied to this tattoo I got for the lols. What the fuck? That is so weird. Also, I feel like that is something that you you and I and the uh, All Things Terror team can get on tattoos instead of what was I I was gonna get like a pentagram on my butt (laughs) yep fun fact I'm the only one that does not have a tattoo in this group you are the only one well we can get this crazy tattoo on us I don't know I still don't think I'm ever gonna get a tattoo oh my god this is so weird that is the weirdest thing I have ever seen 
Yeah, so it was just, you know, people just didn't know what to make of it. Uh, so let's talk about Alexander. Oh my god, that is so weird. Also, it says, I'm looking up something about this tattoo right now, because it says that it's in the autopsy tattoo, or this tattoo is noted in the autopsy, but, quote, relatives do not remember this tattoo. His students who saw him undressed to the waist in physical education classes don't remember it either. Dun, dun, dun. What the fuck? So we need suspenseful music there. I, yeah, Clint... This is blowing my mind. I didn't know about this. And the fact that it's like this weird thing that's never been translated is. Obviously a Yeti tattooed it on him or a UFO. Oh my God. So I, interesting I, detail. Jen, I really want to get this tattoo now. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it for a month before you do that. I know. I'm not going to probably maybe, but that's fucking nuts. That is so cool. So, Alexander... Okay, you're like, shut up, um, this is dumb. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this isn't even, like, the juiciest thing. So, Alexander, um, before he transferred to the um, physics technical department at UPI, he worked as a lab assistant in a top-secret scientific facility in Moscow. Hmm. It's unnamed for the most part, but everybody called it the Atomic Institute. Seems legit. In Yuri, he worked at a plant in My uh, Mayak, which is the second to Chernobyl in terms of nuclear disaster. Oh dear! And that happened in 1957. <gasps> oh, so it would have been so, two years before this. Yep. So, the their combined background is what caused the KGB theory to become popular. Hmm. I guess everybody else had pretty boring run-of-the-mill backgrounds, but then, like, Alexander, Alexander, Yuri, and Simon had some, like, weird shit. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's hard about stuff like that is that it could be weird shit, or it could just be normal weird shit like if i disappeared today they would be like and she had a podcast about weird things did she get too close was she disappeared and it's like no probably not or like you know think is it because they discovered that poltergeists are responsible for spontaneous human combustion yeah or like you know oh you break your routine every so often and it's not a big deal but if you disappear on that day they're gonna be like well why did she stop here on the way home when she normally never stops on the way home like there is that sort of you're looking for clues and then you sort of over determine what those clues mean yeah i and i mean like i mean there are so many strange and interesting details in this case alone like it's hard to sift through what's relevant and what's you know just noise right yeah and i can't remember what year it is but semi-recently they reopened an investigation and were like yeah we haven't found anything new or something like that um 
the other thing too, of course, that I feel like we have to bring up is that it's possible that there are more documents or evidence about this that have not been declassified. That's true. Because it was initially um, classified. There might be all kinds of information that none of us are privy to, right? Because this is still, you know, the Soviet Union had a lot of control over information. And even today, mm -hmm. um, information is tightly controlled in Russia. So Well, and there's also just this moment, like, I think I mentioned it last time, where it's 1959 and, you know, searchers are just walking around the tent. There, there might have been just things that nowadays we would have taken certain care with kinds of evidence or we would have processed the body in this way or, or we would have taken photos in this way that they didn't do then. So something that may seem really weird would be easily solvable if we had different records. Um, I, that is true. We're still in the baby ages before forensic science boom really took off. Yeah, so, so I, it's... I don't know, man. That catabatic wind is an interesting one. It's still my favorite. Is in like I said, in terms of plausibility, that one seems to bring a lot of the pieces of the puzzle together to, for me. Yeah, the problem I have with like any sort of spy one, even though that's really interesting and that tattoo information is blowing my mind, um, is that in 1959, it, you know, this is still gulag time. You know, if if you're a student and you're saying, you know, I actually don't like communism very much, they don't have to, like, concoct a, a mystery to get you away. People are just going to show up at your house and take you to the gulag. Like, that's really common. They're disappearing people or arresting people. Like, secret police are all over the place. They don't, they don't need to create a cover-up to disappear you or kill you. Um, and that is that thing too, if they like, oh, they stumbled upon a military operation. Well, they would just shoot you in the head and take your body away. They're not going to do some weird chicanery. And even like the idea that they were, maybe they were like double agents or something and they're meeting, you know, MI6 or the CIA or something. It's a similar scenario where if they want to do this, you know, they will clean up the campsite so there's no trace of you or take the bodies away or, you know, that it just doesn't, it would be so easy to cover something up entirely or to, if you're the KGB, you don't need a reason to disappear someone. So that whole like cover up CIA spy thing seems a little specious to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I understand how spies work, but I imagine that <laughs> if they were a KGB agent and they were going to go spy on CIA by providing this stuff, I feel like there probably would have been backup and and maybe they wouldn't have stuck them in a bunch of a group with a bunch of ordinary people. Yeah, but they wouldn't. Again, I don't and know. And also, why the fuck would there be CIA out in the middle of nowhere doing CIA business? Like, that doesn't make sense either. That's more suspicious that you have Americans like, oh, yes, we go for a hike. Don't worry about it. Like, that doesn't make sense. Why would they be other agents up there? Well, I think that was just supposed to be, like, they're on their way to meet CIA and they're doing it in the guise of this hiking trip, but who knows where they're actually meeting them at. Oh, it I could see. have been 
So that was, the, you know, like I said, there's a lot of missing details in that one, but it's interesting just because it is kind of salacious. But like, you know, they could have, they were, they may have meant to meet them like on their way back or in one of the towns nearby. But the whole idea is like, their cover story is that they're hikers or skiers going to get their, you know, level three license. Yeah. But really, they are also delivering fake evidence uh, via radioactive clothing to the Americans. Well, I will say one of the things that makes me absolutely livid in movies is when they do this thing where, oh, we're in the resistance or, oh, we're all spies and we're all going to get a room together. And it's like, fuck no, that's not how that works. Like, it's super unsafe for that. And in, I told you about this book that I just finished. It's amazing. And all of you should listen to it. It's called Say Nothing. And it's about the IRA. And you know, the Irish Republican army really thought of themselves as an army, not as like a terrorist group or anything. They felt that they were an army. And so they initially had like a chain of command, like a traditional army. But even within that, you wouldn't necessarily know or acknowledge anything. There's a bit in that book about how a father and son were both in the IRA, but they never acknowledged it. And like the son would ask his friend like, Hey, can you ask my dad if he has any bullets and could you get some for me? Because the idea is if you are a spy or if you are part of a counterinsurgency or a terrorist cell and you get caught, they're going to torture you for information. And so obviously the best way to keep your tiny little secret organization safe is to make sure that nobody has all the information. And it makes me crazy in movies when they have like a spy and he's like, here's this entire organization's plan to take down the Nazis and all the people involved. And it's like, you wouldn't know that if you were running spies, you would never put two spies together. And if you did, you wouldn't tell them that the other one was a spy. That's true. And I, I think that looking at other groups methodologies would shed some light on to like shed some light on why this theory is maybe not as plausible as the other ones yeah. but also sorry to like nerd out on you there but you know you know how oh, no, i feel about spies well you you sent me the book so or titled the book so i'll probably have to look it up but also um i, and I, I keep trying a... to find a reason to put spies as like a topic for this podcast but they're not really scary it's just so exciting to me <laughs> i'm sure you can think of something but i do want to I think this is a great way to wrap up the show. Um, Emily Jennifer found out uh, about some lotion bars that I made and I explained to her how I make them. And I just saw in my email that she sent me two molds linked on Etsy. One is, of course, of a giant penis, like life size. It's got veins. It's got everything. It's very realistic. Very realistic penis, and the other one is of a uh, a Baphomet design inside of a mold for soaps and lotions. So I don't know. Maybe I'll have to make a a cock and balls lotion bar. I mean, we'll that mold is a little bit more expensive, but uh, it's like nine bucks or something. That might be well worth it. I mean, it's you know nine dollars for that to have 
endless cock and balls lotion just and soap rubbing and, a like... penis on you to make your skin feel better <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness <laughs> uh we'll post them in the facebook group and you guys can vote on which one jennifer should buy i i like that idea um welcome back to all things terror welcome back this uh feels really on brand yep <laughs> Until next time. All right. Goodbye forever. Goodbye forever. All Things Terror is written, recorded, and produced by two amateurs, Jennifer and Emily. Our sound editor is... Clint. Intro music is by Cosimo Fogg. Come chat with us on Twitter at All Things Terror or Instagram at All Things Terror Podcast. Ask nicely and we'll probably send you a really cute sticker. If you like this podcast, tell a friend or write a review. It really helps us and helps more people find us. Goodbye forever. This is the longest and most uncomfortable silence ever. This is what Clint has done to us, Jennifer. I know. Everything is his fault. Yeah. I mean, listen, one day we might get over his dictums for a good recording, but for right now, we're just going to roast him every time. How dare you make us sound better? What do you think that is? Your role in this podcast or something? Do you think, like, this isn't a professional outfitting that we have going on here? Yeah, Clint. Jesus. What, do you think you know things or whatever? Yeah, like, you have experience or, like, a degree or anything in this? He doesn't, though. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Burning Clint. It's our favorite pastime. It's a wonder that he tolerates us. Yeah, right. He gives as good as he gets. Don't you ever feel sorry for Clint, listeners. I don't... (laughs) Yes. I like how you're Uh, about to be like, I don't. And I'm like, no, no, I know you don't. (laughs) I don't have the capacity for whatever that emotion is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Never feel bad for Clint. Well...